Welcome to A Page in History. Join us on a fascinating journey as we delve into the memories of the world-famous NBC Pages. Get ready to hear first-hand accounts of their unforgettable experiences as they navigated the hallways of Burbank, California and the iconic 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Prepare to hear fascinating stories that were never meant to reach the ears of the general public. And now, your host for A Page in History, David Harris Katz. Today, we have a very special guest who got his start as an NBC page through some truly non-traditional means. It involved a mouth and no trumpet. He'll give the details. Now, imagine the sheer excitement of stepping foot into the legendary Saturday Night Live studio for the very first time. You'll hear what it was like and how our guest stumbled upon the one and only Paul Schaefer. You'll go behind the scenes and hear the fascinating process of how the dress and air shows work for Saturday Night Live. There was even a time when SNL did an extra show, but somehow left the incredible Billy Crystal on the cutting room floor. It's confusing, he'll explain. Imagine rubbing shoulders with the likes of Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, and Garrett Morris. What were they like back then? You'll hear a first-hand account. But the surprises don't stop there. Our guest had the incredible opportunity to meet the master Muppet himself, Jim Henson. And did you know that Jim Henson's creations originally played late at night? Now, let's talk about the Page Lounge. It turns out that our guest and his fellow Pages had some truly iconic visitors. They were some cool brothers. And let's just say they made the showers a great place for singing the blues. And hear the candid words from Chevy Chase regarding working on SNL. Our guest also had the privilege of being introduced to none other than Billy Murray by Dan Aykroyd. Talk about a legendary duo. Ah, the life of the party. We all want to know who takes the crown at SNL. Our guest will reveal who the biggest member was when it came to bringing the laughter and fun to the set and the after parties. And our guest will explain how he helped Dan Aykroyd master the art of imitating the legendary late night host, Tom Snyder. It was a smoking demonstration. Then brace yourself as our guest shares an unforgettable story about escorting none other than Bond, Sean Connery, and a group of stone celebrities to the bathroom. Trust us, it's not what you think. And would you believe when George Harrison and Paul Simon performed on SNL, almost no one showed up? But our guest stepped in and made sure the show went on without a hitch. He worked in the photo and PR departments, honing his skills that would carry him throughout his career. And he even had a connection to the great Sonny Fox, the VP of children's programming who created the beloved Wonderama show. Get ready to be amazed, entertained, and delighted as we dive deep into the extraordinary world of our remarkable guest. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ed Barenhaus. Hi. Hi, David. Great to be here. Woo! Thank you so much, Ed. That's that's some uh, some introduction. It's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, who this guy is. <laughs> right? No, it's amazing because, again, and we've talked about this before, um, to think of yourself having access to everything that we just sort of promoted um, and being among that world. And I left out some of the stories, you know, maybe we'll touch on, um, but it was amazing. So how do you, how does that uh, compute with you? How do, how do you feel about all that? Well, I have 
I have the most illustrious career. I have no regrets. I am so pleased and lucky that I was graduating from college at the time that I was and entered into the world of NBC in what might be considered a golden era. There were several. Uh, it was 1975, and I had just graduated from Stony Brook University on Long Island and tried my hand at becoming a NBC page. I went and interviewed for the job, and one of my one of my uh, fun uh, talents is imitating the sound of a mouth trumpet. Now, when I was a lot younger, I could hit those really high octaves, and it truly sounded like a trumpet. And I went to the head of page um, interviews, um, a fellow called Peter Hamilton, great guy, still around, and uh, I told him, "Hey, listen, if." Um, Doc Severinsen ever goes on strike, I can imitate the sound of the Tonight Show theme. And um, I then did it for him as part of my interview. And I guess he liked that I was kind of a, a bit of a funny guy and, you know, took myself not too seriously. So I went home on a Friday uh, afternoon and then I was hired on Monday of that that same week and was kind of blew me away. I started, I think, Tuesday of that next week. Um, it would have been um, July of 1975. Uh, so uh, it was just a wonderful experience just finding out about NBC. I grew up with the station. I love the station and then became a tour guide. Whoa. Now, did you did you actually uh, so you you did the trumpet sound for him? Did you show yeah. him? I would demonstrate it for you now, but my voice <laughs> is a lot lower, and you know, right. I can make it sound real. It doesn't really carry on a podcast. Right, right. No, and, da, 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 da. and I did sort of like the, the first couple of uh, 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 chords of it, you know. Wow. It, it is funny, and, I, and, it, and again, I always, I always sort of try to, like, you know, give tips, you know, to some of the younger folks or, or folks that are trying to break through. But even when I was, I went for the for the page assignment for SNL, and Marcy Klein was the one that interviewed me. On my resume, I had that I juggled, and she literally said juggle. <laughs> so I juggled, and then okay, you got the job, you know. So you know maybe when they, you know, you and me and other folks, you know, they get so much. You know, they, they get so so inundated with, you know, applications that when someone sort of cuts through in a way that's memorable, they got to hire somebody. So they're like, you know, you're hired, you know. So I think that's a good, you know, like try something different. So that was kind of cool that they, they got I, you. I couldn't agree more. If you can think out of the box, as they say, if you can come up with a, a unique selling point, uh, you're going to stand out. And you got to figure that hundreds of people interviewed for this job. And uh, I was one of the lucky ones who got through. Wow. So tell us about, so the first, so you, so here you are hired and now you, you got a chance to walk into the SNL set studio 8H um, and you ran into uh, Paul Schaefer. Is that correct? What was well, that that's, about? That's almost correct. Uh, basically I started giving tours and okay. of course we anticipated, if you recall in 1975 and before Carson uh, reruns were running on Saturday nights and, and Johnny Carson did not want that much exposure. So they uh, they eventually enlisted Lauren Michaels and Dick Ebersole to create a late night show. And we heard about it coming, but really my first exposure to Saturday night was giving a tour 
and looking through the the window, I guess on the ninth floor, looking down at Studio at H, and there were uh, four people in there: a piano player, uh, a guitarist, a drummer. And what they were doing was creating the theme song for Saturday Night Live, which is the same one they're still using today. And two of those people were Paul Schaefer and Howard Shore. Wow. And at the time, of course, I didn't know who they were because it was literally my first exposure. But having a background in music, I said, gee, this is going to be fun. Wow. So literally the, the show, because it originally started, I believe, right? It, it was called Saturday Night, right? It, wasn't... it was actually called NBC Saturday Night because uh, there was a Howard Cosell show on ABC called Saturday Night Live, which only lasted a season. And I think for the first two years, it was called NBC Saturday Night. But somewhere in the course of the second year, they transitioned to the new name Saturday Night Live. Mm. So you, so when you went in there, they it literally didn't even exist. And then you, you really saw them practicing this song. I mean, you know, right? The, it was the just a song. combo. It was this four-piece combo, literally in the studio, no stage built yet. None of wow. that was, and and they were rehearsing. And I, I, I obviously asked someone what's going on down there, so I could tell my. Um, my tour. Mm. I mean, just to think that you were that you were giving a tour before SNL began is insane. Um, yeah. You know, it's funny because you know when when we talk when some of the older folks, you know, you're a little older than me, but even when I talk to some of the younger folks, you know, they actually I spoke to somebody um, who they didn't even they've never watched one episode of SNL, and I'm like, mm. how do you? They're like 35 years. Old. I'm like, how has you have you not done that? But um, so again, like to me, SNL was always around because when I was born, it was already airing. But to think that you overlooked that studio and I guess prior because that's that was in the uh, Toro Tuscanini Orchestra studio, which was SNL, which was 8H. So what were they doing in that studio? Or do you even know We like what were they doing in that studio prior to SNL? Because it's the largest one in the building. But you know, was anything else being done in there while you were there before they started? Well, they did a lot of variety specials, I understand. Uh, mm -hmm. But also during the presidential elections, they used that studio um, to become their election central. Oh, OK. So that, that I know. And and I, I understand there were the craft musical type shows there and what right. happened. Um, right. But of course, at that time, it, we we used to tout, as you just mentioned, that it was built for Arturo Toscanini and it was put in, the studio itself was suspended so that it wouldn't catch the vibrations of the subways beneath Rockefeller Center, which in its own way is kind of unique. Mm -hmm. And as you may remember, they even built a secret elevator because he was such a, he was kind of a pop star in his own right, Toscanini. And they had a secret elevator for him to sneak, sneak out so that he didn't have to deal with all the fandom. Right. And and I and it's funny. Now, do you know where that secret elevator is? You know, you... Uh, to this day, I'm not sure. Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so it's so right where the page desk is, you know, and, and those listening, when you watch the show, there's that page desk right outside the the the, um, the building, outside of the doors. And uh, again, Joe DiTullio, who was a page uh, during my time, was one of the art or still is one of the art directors. And I believe he built that page desk 
for um, for SNL. So I think he he did that, which I'm proud that he was a, an ex page that built that that desk. But mm-hmm. right across, like literally four or five feet across the hallway, is a closet. And if you open the closet to this day, there are metal shelves. It's only about three or four feet wide, small little closet. There's literally metal shelves where they put. I think they were putting lights in it, whatever. But if you literally just move a light over and just stick your hand, that's the door of the elevator. So wow. there's literally an elevator shaft in the closet right in front of the 8H door, which is is so we I mean again, I, I love the history part of this. I'm not really sure where um because I've been underground um and I've talked about it in the past, but I don't know where that elevator shaft runs down maybe actually i wonder i wonder if i should we could probably find some uh blueprints of uh of that building and and see because you'd be able to see the shaft there from uh back in the day so with snl um explain to the folks the the process of you have a dress rehearsal which some people don't understand and we have an air show but one time you said there was a diff. They they did like some extra air uh, dress rehearsals and involved Billy Crystal. <laughs> so what was that about? Well, there there uh, there are a number of procedures during the week. I'm sure you've spoken about this before, but basically, there's an all night writing session on Tuesday nights, as I recall. Uh, there there are first blocking rehearsals uh, on Wednesday in the studio. Generally on Thursdays, they brought in the musical guest to rehearse that and all of the uh, the blocking for that. And I will say that the music was shot sort of, it was sort of ahead of its time, credit to Dave Wilson, uh, who- uh, Was he the director? Yeah, he was- Yeah, okay, director. so I remember him, yeah. And, and he just did a beautiful job of blocking that. Mm. Um, and then of course, Friday, they, they would go through all this, the, the various skits, and by then the, build, the sets are being built. But on, by, by Saturday night, there would be a dress rehearsal at approximately 7.30 or 8.30, I can't recall. And they would go through the entire show and then some. And then uh, Lauren Michaels would meet with the, the, the writers and, and the, uh, the performers and determine what stays and what goes. Sometimes they'd rearrange things. Generally, they put the better uh, comedy first because by one o'clock, people, a lot of people are tuning out. But sometimes you'll find some real gems in those later hours. Uh, I'd have to say I've probably watched every single Saturday Night Live. It's part of my DNA coming from from that. Oh, wow. But now on that first show, which was approximately October 11th, 1975, they actually did a Friday night show where they, because obviously no one had done the show before, they wanted to really make sure that they knew what it was going to look like the next night. So they did an extra dress rehearsal that very first show. And we pages were invited to bring friends because people didn't know what the show was yet. And it wasn't Saturday night yet. And I had my entire family there, as I recall, pretty much everyone I knew. Um, And uh, there were a number of acts, uh, Andy Kaufman, uh, Jim Henson had his original Muppets um, for for a late night. They were they were a bit racier than the Muppets we all know today. Um, Frank Oz was with him. Andy Kaufman uh, did this oddball character, which of course became 
uh, his signature character doing Mighty Mouse and what have you. But it was Billy Crystal that stood out. I knew who he was. For some reason, I was following stand-up comics at the time. I was into music and comedy. And he was there and did his old jazz character. Um, it's sort of a sort of a, a person who scats and what have you. He did that character. And then he did, did another bit with potato chips, as I recall. But he got cut. He got wow. cut. All the things that were on the show that first week. It was a real oddball show. Uh, they had Billy Preston, I believe. Um, I think Janice Ian as well. Um, I should have reviewed the show before I came in, but uh, to this interview, but I, I did. Your memory is better. It's, it's funny. The fact that you remember all this, I, I, sometimes I have a trouble remembering that far back. Well, um, you know, it, it was pretty much imprinted on my, my brain at the time. It, right. It's still one of the highlights of my career is being part of that show in the early days. Wow. So in other words, they, so the, the dress rehearsal on Friday, um, you know, you said Billy did, he, performed but then when it came saturday they did another dress rehearsal you know prior to the air show and and billy wasn't you know a part right. of that one i guess at that point and then they did the the, the live first show right did you work the first did you actually oh, did you work sure. the first you, oh my it god it's traditional that the pages would come in around four o'clock five o'clock on saturday night we'd get ready for the dress rehearsal bring in the audiences go through that whole process. It would end, I'm going to say around 10, 1030. It was pretty cutting it close. Uh, they would have their meeting and then they'd go live at 11, 1130. Um, wow. What was, was that like? What was that like? It's very exciting. It was very exciting. You always felt like you were at the, at the grand opening, the opening night of something, because it was the only live television at the time, pretty much all the shows that had existed in in the live era. In fact, I believe Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows was was originally shot in that studio as well. All of that was gone. Mm -hmm. And this was the first attempt to bring back a live show. So wow. anything could happen. Right. And do you remember, um, did you enjoy the show? Was it a good oh, show? Oh. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't, it's funny. I don't, and again, I'm, we, I mentioned this uh, Ken Hummel, who's our resident uh, expert when it comes to programming. And I'm sure he he's watched the first episode a thousand times. But yeah, did after that first show aired, what was the reaction from people? What do you remember? Well, I, I think the first show was really needed a chance to establish itself. No one knew who these people were. Right. No one knew what was going on at the time. Um, I actually think they, they really didn't get their rhythm going until mid-December, the Candy Bergen show, Candace Bergen show, oh. where they really understood how to end a bit. You know, there's a rule of three in comedy. You repeat something three times and then you, you either pay it off on the third time or come to a punchline. They might go five or six times before right. they did a bit. Um, there was a lot of experiment, experimental stuff. Albert Brooks did a series of movies for them. Gary Weiss was their resident filmmaker in those early years. Um, it was always kind of a, a hit, hit or miss for some of the right. bits. But right. somehow that same year, by December, they started to get a rhythm. And people were taking notice. Uh, we, we started to establish that uh, Chevy Chase was a star uh, John Belushi was something of a rebel and a renegade, and Gilda Radner was some was kind of beloved at that point. She started to gain a following, so it took a little while 
Um, but I'll tell you, these people were really down to earth in those early years. Um, I was the same age as Dan Aykroyd. Uh, most, most of the time they treated you like equals. You never felt talked down to when, uh, when you, when you met with them or interacted with them, they were really polite. And the pages were kind of included in the family, all of the after parties in that era. Uh, you you would be able to go to these parties with no issue. So you'd wind up mingling with celebrities and what have you. It was just fantastic. It was an amazing time. Um, other things going on at 30 Rock were, were game shows, like To Tell the Truth. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful time to be part of that, that whole experience. Wow. So um, you mentioned Dan Aykroyd, Gil Radner, Garrett, you know, and then uh, I mentioned Garrett Morris at the top. So these folks, again... A lot of these folks were, were you like 21-ish? Oh, 21, know. yeah. 21. Um, and then I guess, yeah, it's true. I guess they were in that range, uh, which, right. which, of course, you know, when, you, when you're watching them as a young kid, you think they're, you know, they're older, but they were pretty right. young. Um, so what was, did you have conversations with Dan um, or Gilda or Garrett or how they, well, how they? Yeah, Gilda was the sweetest person. You know, she, she was wrestling with the fame, but at the same time, she was super friendly. Um, I could bump into her and, and ask her how she's doing, and she spent time talking to me. Oh. You would, you would. There was a little candy store, like literally outside the page booth. I don't think it's there anymore. It was a newsstand and what have you. You'd bump into her in there, and she she'd ask you about your weekend or what have you. She was that kind of a person. Um, she would sometimes rehearse in a corner and ask you what you thought. It was great. Um, Dan, same way. Dan and I bonded a bit uh, over over music because we both played harmonica and blues was an important part of our lives. I didn't know at the time he'd become, you know, the blues brother that he that he was. Um, he would we uh, I had a writing partner, also a page for unfortunately no longer with us, Michael Smith. And we submitted jokes to Dan and and he actually liked some of them and offered to buy a couple of them. Really? Uh, that shows how down to earth he was. They, he was the kind of guy, if he had a bag of um, like trail mix or something, he'd just hand it and say, hey, have some. You know, he was that kind of a guy, really, really down to earth. And I, I continued my relationship with Dan for many years after that, bumping into him at various parts of my career. Uh, I knew his wife, Donna Dixon, when I worked for Martha Stewart years later, was a big fan. So I sent him a whole bunch of Martha's books. They wow. in turn sent me this beautiful cake from New Orleans with, I guess, all the New Orleans, uh, uh, I, I, they, they put little um, the babies, the babies, yeah, the yeah. babies in it, right? In the cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I continued, I suspect if I bumped into him today, he'd still remember who I am. I wow. can tell more stories about that, but let's, let's, we'll get there. Um, no, no. Okay. And then also, and, and, and I want to mention, well, I'll mention something about the joke. Uh, when I was working the the desk, the 8H desk, Kevin Nealon, who was doing weekend, I think he was doing weekend update at, right at one point, I guess. Yeah, I can't. I, and it's becoming such a blur. But he literally comes out and asks me, you know, what do you think of these jokes? And he's literally reading me these different jokes. And I was like, well, I really don't like that one. But I think this one is good. And I'm giving him advice on what jokes. And it's it, it, it. You know, I do give them credit. I do give the the I give the whole program credit in the sense that, you know, for Kevin Nealon to ask, you know, me what he thinks of these jokes, 
And to have you be a part of it and some of the conversations I've had with many other folks, we were included. You know, we were really felt included in in that group when in fact all of these famous celebrities, you know, they could have treated us like, you know, like who is this security guard just standing there, you know, and and not really respect right. us. But but my whole experience that everybody that I met through the whole building from literally Bob Wright's office all the way down to the cleaning crew, that was the scope at which I was friendly with. And they were all everybody in between was amazing. So it's it's right. so cool that you had that experience back then as well. Well, um, I, I can share a similar experience with the, the president when I, I was still there, um, Herb Schlosser. Uh there was a point I'd, I was, I'm jumping ahead in my career. I worked for Channel 4 WNBC Advertising Promotion, and they had layoffs. And I knew Herb from my days as a page. He was always very polite. President of NBC, great guy. Uh, he saw, I, I got laid off from, I was at a very entry-level position in Channel 4, and he saw my face, and he said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I just got laid off. And this is in an elevator, no less. He says, well, I want you to go over to the Warner Brothers and he introduced me to a whole bunch of people at Warner Brothers to see if oh. I can get a job there. This is this is the kind of people they were. It was truly a family back then. You didn't get that sense of the corporate uh, uh, machine that it, it it kind of became after a while, given that it's been sold and, and bought a few times since then. Um, hopefully there's still that family camaraderie at uh, at Saturday Night Live. Well, you know, and I'll touch on some of the promotion and we'll we'll come back to some SNL stories. But you mentioned the WNBC advertising and promotion. Um, so ironically, I worked in that same department. Um, and it's so funny because I'll mention her name, Judy Gerard, sure. uh, who was the, you know, Judy. So yeah. she was the president of WNBC. Mm-hmm. And I, ba- you know, and I was always I was always willing to do I would clean the toilets if they had asked me to clean the toilets. And that's what I did. And literally, I got a phone call saying, Judy wants to see you in her office. You know, I'm like this, this lowly page, go up to Judy's office. And again, it was this ginormous. It was right out of the movies. It was a huge office. Mm-hmm. She's sitting behind the desk with her feet up on the desk. I mean, it couldn't have been more out of a movie. And she literally says, what do you want to do with your life? And, and what, you know, and I literally said to her, I, it was really funny. She said, uh, I said, well, I was, you know, oh, she actually asked me the question. She says, why are you so good? And I said, well, I I'm working really hard to do whatever I can, hoping that someone, you know, hoping the president would call me into their office and offer me a job. Like it was, it was right. And literally she said, we're starting this new department called, uh, it was called local advertising and promotion at the time they changed it to creative services. And they said, we have this guy coming from Oklahoma. His name is Randy Poburn. And uh, Randy came in and that's, and, and all of the four New York, you know, that I'm for New York, I'm for New York. I worked on all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I got that gig. So the fact that this person you met in the elevator, you know, it's those connections and the, and actually, you know, you being there, getting in the elevator, you know, working from home would never have gotten you in the elevator to talk right. to this guy, you know? So I think that that's amazing. Um, and, and just while we're on the subject for WMC, what kind of stuff did you remember from your, from that time for oh, pro- promoting? Well, and stuff? I was, I was a, uh, I started out as a print coordinator, moved into video. 
Uh, I was involved in the first movable ID, the video ID, which is four seconds. Mm. Uh, worked with a promotion manager named Joe Andrick and helped develop that. Really? It was groundbreaking. Uh, it was the first NBC owned and operated station to roll them out. Up until then, they were just slides. You would have mm. a, uh, an image of Frank Field or whomever and it would say, see Frank's weather at five, you know, that sort of thing. And then, and then we started recording these four second spots and and challenged the entire industry, really. It was the beginning of, of much more uh, video focused promotion. Well, let me, I'm going to touch on that. So again, for the listeners, every, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the four second, for the most part, the four second ID, as it's known, generally was a station identification legal thing that the FCC required every station to do every hour, I guess. So I think when it started, it was, it was, you know, you're watching, you know, this is WNBC. Uh, and sometimes you'll see even today, like, like me TV in New York, they'll say uh, you'll see WXRP, you know, New Jersey, you know? Um, so legally they sort of have to tell you the actual call letters of the station, even though they refer to themselves as me TV or whatever it is. Yeah. So then um, those four seconds, I guess, through your evolution, you know, um, decided to now use those as promotional vehicles to get rid of just the station ID. Is that? Well, it was multipurpose. Basically, we were able to show the animated four and the call letters WNBC TV and have the voiceover promote the personality or show. Um, and generally speaking, it was a news promo. Again, generally it was for right. Scarborough or Sue Simmons or Frank Field in my era. Right. It's still there amazingly. No, and it's funny because those four second IDs, I sort of went nuts on them. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a couple of situations. One is I said I wanted to do a four New York back when we, in, in, I don't even know if it's still, it was the four New York in script logo. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to my boss, and 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 we're gonna say it like it is. I said to him, I want to carve the logo into a pumpkin, and do you know uh, you're watching for New York, you know, like some scary thing with smoke, you know, uh, you know. So it would, it would be a station ID, but the logo. So I remember Pyburn almost threw a tape at my head and said to me, "No, you you can't do it." Yeah, he's he. As a matter of fact, if if I do recall, he slammed the desk his hand on the desk saying, you cannot do that. And I said, I said, he said, why, he, like, why do you want to do it? I said, because it's going to be amazing. So in my usual fashion, I did it anyway and basically got it on the air. And all of a sudden it was airing and Bill Bolster, do you know, Bill Bolster, he, he, he wound up becoming the president of WNBC after Judy left. Mm -hmm. Bill Bolster is like Godzilla. So I'm standing in 30 on the sixth floor um seven wait, wait, let's see where were we the wnbc offices we moved to i think it was either seventh floor and bolsters coming down the hallway like yeah, yeah. and screams from that like literally a hundred feet away who did that what the? and he's who's did that logo and i literally go uh, i did he goes that is the best thing I've ever seen in the world. He, he literally almost licked my face. Cool. So he loved it. He loved it, loved it, loved it. And, you know, um, thank God he loved it. But 
in in that same vein, like I remember for Mother's Day, and my mother still has the Mavograph. I believe it was called a print, where I had the the um, the peacock logo colored with crayons as if a, a, a girl little girl. And I found some little I found some little girl, some little kid in Thirty Rock with their parents, brought them up to the studio and into one of our recording studios, and I had them record. You know you know, happy Mother's Day from for New York. And the and 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 Bruce Brower, who is the graphic artist, I believe he he moved the hand like coloring in one of the feathers. Mm-hmm. So I just every every holiday, you know, it was an egg or, you know, some some clever way. Even for Father's Day, I had a guy lawn, m- mowing the lawn and he revealed the logo after he mowed the lawn, you know. So it was a fun it was, I, I had a blast doing those because they're short, sweet. And it's like it makes you, you know, to come up with something creative in four seconds is pretty tough you know so it's fun to do that now you got a chance to evolve the movable id when i was there we were still conforming to net amp as it was called back then yeah network standards and so we always had a logo in a certain place or in one of the quadrants and right uh, it had to be balanced as as it 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 was a legal id you know at the same time but by the time you you took the reins it was a it was a more creative shop it was also when cable was emerging. Uh, one of my first jobs after leaving NBC was working with Nick at Night, which, in my opinion, is still the most creative place I ever worked during the, uh, I guess, the 80s and early 90s. Uh, but we can talk about that later. Wow. Back OK, to- well, well, let's yeah. OK, so, you know, we'll, we'll hit a couple of some of the other notes that I mentioned at the top of the show, and then we'll if we'll see if we have time for that. Um, so the page lounge for those listening you know we we and again i'm assuming it was the same one i don't know if we could you could explain but we had a page lounge it was on the mezzanine level and it was quite nice we had an office and it was our own almost like our own private floor because no one else was there and we had a lounge we had couches we had a tv but we also had showers and lock like a locker room with showers and such so you apparently were witness to some special and normally folks didn't really come to our area but right. you did. So tell us about that. Well, first of all, there was also a ping pong table. I don't know. If oh, was... really? No, we didn't have a ping pong table. Oh, wow. that was a big deal. We would all play ping really? pong our, our off time. Uh, but in those early years, uh, John Ackroyd, uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd lived in their office on the 17th floor. They They were new to New York. So they would come down to the page locker room and take showers. Wow. And it's not uncommon to see uh, John Belushi wrapped in a towel or even less walking around the page locker room. <laughs> he would come in there and do his, his thing. He was he was a really nice guy. You know, he wasn't outgoing and talkative, but you always felt comfortable around him. He never made you feel uncomfortable. Um, sweet man. Sweet man. Wow. Mr. Dearly. I actually yeah. saw him not too before, not long before he had passed. He was back in the building visiting some people and he greeted me warmly and uh, he seemed he seemed happy. Everything seemed fine. And then, yeah. of course, a little later, we lost him. Wow. So in other words, so 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 Dana, you know, they basically would just they, you know, needed a shower and yeah. that went into the thing. And it's funny because I know we go up to their office on the 17th floor and you would see they had this sort of pull out bed situation where they would sleep. It was right. great. It's it's the um, the dressing rooms again for those listening, you know, the dressing rooms for the for the talent, for the guest host and then the band 
are are sort of right down, you know, a little bit where Tuscanese's elevator is. You know, there's a hallway to the right of that, and right there is the um are those dressing rooms, and in those dressing rooms there actually is a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, also for the, for anybody that wants to take a, a thing, cause I personally, I too, there would, I, I, my record and it's a, it's a long story, but I sleep, I slept at 30 rock for, I think like three or four days straight. Oh. Um, so I would use those. I actually use those showers all the time, even though it's kind of gross, but I mean, you're there and it's, you know, you, you kind of have no choice, you know, Better than um, not showering. That's right. Right. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so uh, what about Chevy Chase? So I guess you had a chance. Did you speak to him personally where he was sort of giving his two cents on on working on SNL? Well, he uh, he was always walking around after the dress rehearsal. He would walk through the halls of 8 age carrying a wine glass and sort of playing with the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pages also played with the crowd in those days. We would we would try to be funny. We would try to keep them upbeat, get the energy up for for the air show. And uh, he would come out and talk to people. But as the second season um, moved on, you could see that he no longer came out and he seemed kind of distant. Um, I believe he had a a wife or a girlfriend who wanted to move to California and he decided he was going to do that. But then one day I see him going up to the 17th floor, which is in a different part of the building. And I said, hey, how are you doing? He goes, oh, man, it's such a grind. He seemed very unhappy. And it was just after that that he announced that he was leaving the show. Wow. Uh, and so I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think he didn't know what what a great opportunity it was. He sort of, I guess he felt the relationship was more important and, right. uh, and moved on. Of course, he had a film career, not to not to diminish his talent or anything, but uh, right. he was sorely missed at, at the beginning of that era. Mm. And that could transition to the other thing you mentioned. I was in the, uh, I was in the studio when um, Dan Aykroyd walks in and he says, hey, Ed, I want you to meet this new cast member. His name is Billy Murray. I want you to make sure you give him a little bit of a, an extra boost, laugh extra hard and what <laughs> extra loud when he, when he does something. And of course, Bill really never needed that help. Uh, he right. was from the get-go. Um, and I know in your introduction, you mentioned life of the party. Well, the mystery solved. Bill Murray was always the guy who, in any situation, would get everybody up off their off their duffs and start dancing or what have you. I can remember being in rooms with him where he'd grab someone if there was music playing, he'd grab someone and start dancing and get us all up and 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 jacked up. He was such a sweet guy really nice to work with wow and it's funny i think there's a um there's a documentary i forget what it's called like either something about bill murray where he just where he shows up to people's houses unannounced often and then and then all these like um i guess home videos we'll call them where he's like the life of the party so it's it's i think maybe it's called finding bill murray or something but it's it's all him just I guess popping up to people's weddings or this or that. So it kind of it really actually, you know, solidifies your your uh, thoughts on that. I know um, I saw a post recently where he photobombed a wedding, you know, just okay. Just, so just like yeah. that. He's always doing that sort of thing. I mean, I wow. think it's still true to form. Wow. Um, and what about um, I guess Dan Aykroyd, was it Dan Aykroyd who asked you about uh Tom Snyder? Was Tom Snyder well, and that was being recorded Tom was being shot at at in in 30 rock right 
Yeah. At the time, okay. Uh, Tom was either in Studio 6A or 6B. One of those studios was, at that time, it was called New Center 4, before it yeah. was New Four New York. And uh, Tom had the other studio. And uh, he was still new. He um, somewhat, uh, he had a very forceful personality. And Dan decided to impersonate him. And because I was... I, I don't recall now the timeline, but I was involved with Tom Snyder in certain ways I can talk about in a minute, but he uh, he wanted to know how Tom would sit. And Tom had this habit of having a cigarette in his hand and holding his hand up sort of like this and would move back and forth like, well, you can't see this on the right. podcast, but I'd have his hand sort of vertical with a V shape for where he, he holds the cigarette. And... Uh, and he would puff away and then talk to people and 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 then did the rest. But I showed him this move wow. and it helped him with his impersonation. Uh, <laughs> Again, it's it's so cool. I, you know, yeah. and, and it's I mean, Hems, I, I love Tom Snyder anyway, but you know, he's a great, he was great. But um uh the fact again that 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 he would the this these famous talent, you know, would would ask, you know, pages and such to right. really give them advice. And I guess. You know, when you're and I know this and I'm sure this happened to you, too, even when you're doing the promos or any of the things you've done, you know, there is a lot of pressure and there's not a lot of time. Right. So, you know, you're you're given a task of like coming out, come up with something funny like tonight, today. So, you know, if you're sitting there by yourself trying to do something by yourself, you know, oftentimes, you know, the you know, the closest person might be a page and it is helpful just to, you know, hey, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. So maybe that's why they were so open because the pressure of just, you know, going on live TV or, or, or doing a show, whatever they were doing, um, you know, any feedback could be helpful, you know, so maybe, maybe that that's why they were so open. I don't know. I think you're right. But also because we were exposed to so much talent at that time. Yeah. So much going on that uh, it was, it was sort of easy to ask for feedback among people who, who were there. Right. Right. I think that wow. was and again it was also the the nature of personality they they were they were down to earth they weren't superstars they were they were trying to work out their their creativity and and getting feedback wow now when I, you know again when i was a page i don't believe we were ever tasked to bring anyone to the bathroom i don't think i mean i know you know if, if i worked the today show i believe i think there might have been a bathroom there i mean there was a bathroom around the corner so and I speaking some of the West Coast pages, they had like limo runs, but mm -hmm. you, you know, so they got to go pick up stars at their houses and or pick them up at the plane. So um, so tell us about you had you had Sean Connery and you had some other stoned folks, which was a good tease because it'll explain that. So tell us about that thing. <laughs> well, one of the tasks of the pages was to guard the doors of New Center 5 and New Center 4 and, and Live at 5. And uh, if any of the celebrity guests, they would interview them on the Live at 5 show, needed anything, it would be our, our job to help them. And so Sean Connery shows up and you can imagine that he's one of my idols of all time. This is about the time that he's promoting Robin and Marion, uh, the, the film he did I think with Audrey Hepburn, and uh, he's dressed very gentlemanly in a suit, looking Bond-like, and uh, he has to go to the restroom. 
So, of course, I take him to the restroom. Now, if you recall those in, in the part of 8-H, in, in, in the, um, all the men's rooms uh, in the NBC studio area were pretty old and they required a key. Mm, Turns yeah. out that my key would not work. Oh. And I, as much as I try to jiggle the key, I couldn't get the door open. Oh, no. And I suddenly saw James Bond lose his cool. He, he, he was panicking because obviously yeah. he answered nature's call and he had to be on live at five in a few minutes. So I almost said to him, well, you're James Bond. You figure it out. <laughs> That'd be the last thing you say at NBC. That'll be your last day. Yeah. But actually, uh, he was saved because somebody was in the bathroom and opened the door for him. Wow. So, you know, happy ending, so to speak. Everything worked out just fine. But it was a moment. It was a moment I remember. Uh, the other story refers to Mick Jagger and Ron Wood. When... Uh, you you mentioned in one of your shows about tape and hold. Lauren yeah. Michaels, the producer of the show, would often have uh, tape and hold seats. And most of the time, we knew who was going to sit in them. But this particular time, on the ninth floor, there were four seats tape and hold, and there was no names or anything. Uh, it was 1976. Eric Idle was the host. Joe Cocker oh. was the guest, wow. and, musical guest. And... Uh, the show starts and Eric comes out and he's doing his monologue. And all of a sudden, uh, through the ninth floor doors comes Mick Jagger and Ron Wood. Now, remember, um, the Beatles had broken up in 1970. This is 1976. The stones were white hot. They couldn't have been hotter. And obviously, it didn't take much to figure out those seats were for Mick Jagger and Ron Wood. And they brought two women with them. They called them chippies. And this is at the time when he wrote Miss You for Bianca Jagger. But I guess he wasn't missing her too much at that moment. Oh, no. So we see, I seat them and uh, I go to my supervisor and say, Mick Jagger and Ron Wood are here. What do you do? I said, just make sure they're okay. So no sooner do they sit down, you could feel the entire ninth floor buzz with energy because two Rolling Stones are sitting there. And everyone is literally flipping out. Um, and what do they do? They get up. They get up and they want to go. They come up to me and they say, we'd like to go to the loo. And fortunately, I knew what a loo was because it's. I've been to France. And <laughs> uh, I say, sure. And as you know, there's a, about a 30 foot, maybe, I don't know. It's a good. It's probably, uh, it could be 100 feet down the hallway from the night. They're on the ninth floor, right? They're on the ninth so you, you have to go to the elevator bank and make a left. Right, exactly. And so we're walking down the hallway and I say, how are you guys doing? Remember, I'm in my uniform and they're so polite. You know, Mick was actually born of, of an upper class. And I guess seeing someone in uniform, he couldn't have been more polite to me. You know, oh, everything is lovely here. And I said, you know, there's 17 million people watching the show oh really i said you guys ought to be on the show no, no <laughs> i'd like to take a little credit but i have right yeah. i'm feeling yeah, take the credit people. take the credit yeah. <laughs> in any event we get to the bathroom and there are three or four people in there and i've never seen people scatter so quickly they all they saw me walk in with these two superstars and they all just bugged out they just left wow and uh we performed acts of nature together and i didn't look down <laughs> <laughs> and then took them back to their seats 
And then later, um, they wanted to go to Joe Cocker's dressing room, brought him to Joe Cocker's dressing room. And finally, this very burly uh, security guard from Rock Center shows up, looks at me and laughs and says, huh, you're the security and uh, escorts them out through that Arturo Toscanini secret elevator into wow. the bowels of NBC. Wow. It's uh, so amazing. And it's, it's funny um, just to talk, go back to the, to the bathroom, the bathroom. And then I'll touch on that on, on what you just said. I do remember now that you're bringing it up. It's funny. I do remember the keys to the doors and it was <laughs> funny because right. The, being in such an iconic building, the, and for some reason I think of my dad, in the, I don't know, he was in the floor covering business and he, he um, you know, sold tile and, and carpet and such. But you'd go into those bathrooms and they had some of the original fixtures, you know, right. like the tile. And I mean, it was like the classic bathroom that was built, you know, when the building was built. Um, and then you had some new some of the bathrooms then were redone, you know, while I was there. And I think now now I think most of them are all modern and, and changed. Mm -hmm. um, and then I know that they even at WNBC, they also had, you know, like Bill, Bill Bolster, like they built like a, like a really nice one. So I don't know, because I was so nosy with everything. Like somehow I probably got a key. So I, did you, did, did, did you or the pages? Cause did you ever, were they, were they give it? I don't know how I got a key, but I somehow. Well, we all had keys. And oh, you did have key. We okay. At WNBC, we still had keys. Okay. So I remember, I guess, but some doors were open and some weren't. For, for some reason, like different bathrooms on different floors, you know, were open and some weren't open. So it was, but I do remember like, like finding the best bathroom or where I had, you know, like it was so weird. The, and um, just looking at the architecture and, and all the differences was. Uh, yeah. My, was my recollection is that the bathrooms had not been renovated. They all had that art deco feel to them, right. which right. was charming in itself, but they were certainly out of date for the 1970s. But it was also part of the beauty of the building, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I and, and that's the thing. I, part of, you know, the awe, you know, when you walk into the building, there was something. And it was funny. I, I used to uh, do editing. I used to, When I did Charles Perez, I worked at Broadway Video mm -hmm. uh, in the Brill building. And those bathrooms, you know, the, and it was and Broadway Video was who produced, you know, that's Lauren Michaels company who produced us and, you know, Saturday Night Live. So, again, those bathrooms in that building. I just thought it was so cool because they were old school bathrooms. I mean, like, you know, you know, and there was there was something charming about that. But um, but you mentioned, you know, doing your business with uh, the Rolling Stones at the SNL after uh, the, the SNL end of year party in, in May, like the last show, they have a party on the um, where the rink would normally be, but they right. change it into like cafe. Mm -hmm. So I so again, the pages we're all invited to that party. So every year, you know, there's this, you know, for those listening, there's um, the, the after party is actually thrown, you know, on the rink where the cafe is. And I remember that Elvis Costello was, was uh, me and him were waiting to go to the bathroom. So I literally like waited behind Elvis to do his business. <laughs> and then he walked out and, you know, and I know my brother at the time was a big fan and, and I was somewhat of a fan. So it was kind of funny. Uh, so you never know, you know, who you're going to bump into. Well, on that on that note, uh, when I worked for Channel 4, I would run into people in the bathroom from the, uh, the Tomorrow Show and also from uh, the the doctors. 
which was a soap opera that was on. Oh, and wow. notably, Alec Baldwin and I seemed to have the same biological rhythms because I brought into him frequently in the bathroom. And we were, you know, friendly as colleagues. We never really, I don't know if he ever heard my name. I obviously knew who he was. Very young, really handsome in those days. Uh, and, you know, it looked like he had a big career ahead of him. And of course he did. Um, and, and then I, I can recall one time where I'm in there and I hear somebody sort of warming up their vocals in, in one of the stalls. And I, it's great for echoes and all of that. Well, that was meatloaf. And oh my God. it was just so odd walking in there and all of a sudden hearing some, da, 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 you know, all this, all this uh, vocalizing to get himself ready for the show. Wow. Yeah, the tomorrow show at the time. Wow. That's like it's like gold. I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, you, you know, yeah. you're probably one of the very few people to hear meatloaf warming up in the exactly. bathroom. <laughs> I don't know what to say. That's it's incredible. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh well, speaking of well, we, we mentioned the Beatles a, a little back, but uh George Harrison and Paul Simon, um, they explained that. So they were in the in the SNL studio. Well, yeah, what was the story with that whole thing? So, as you may remember, Paul was one of the first guests of Saturday Night Live, and uh, it was a real thrill. I grew up in Flushing, Queens, literally on the same road, 70th Road, in Kew Garden Hills as Simon and Garfunkel. So they were an integral part of my life. No, actually, wait, before you continue, I'm just going to pause. You, you wouldn't happen to know Linda Katz or Phyllis and her, I don't forget her last name, I have it written down. Because my mother and Phyllis, her and b before she was married, Phyllis dated Paul Simon, and you just mentioned Seventieth Road, and I literally reached out to Paul Simon's people not like probably a month ago, and I literally wrote you, and it, so it just rings a bell that I'm like I'm like tell tell them that your mother used to hang out with with his mother on the stoop, on that road. So you probably came across my mom <laughs> back in the day. I don't know. It's it's totally possible. Oh my God! Wow. Okay, that's a whole other story. Yes, so, that's okay. Go on. Nineteen seventy-six, as you may recall, uh, Paul, Paul, and 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 Artie were were estranged, uh, pretty much for a few years. Um, the story we found out later is that Paul had signed a uh, a songwriting contract that pretty much shut out Art Art, Art Garfunkel. And and from the very beginning of their career, even though it was super successful, um, there was there was friction. So they they broke up around, I think, 1970, 1972, something like that. And then they planned to get back together. They wrote a song called Our Little Town, which, by the way, shows a photo of that driveway on 70th Road where they lived. Oh, my God. Um, well, I'm going to have to look for that. So it was a big deal that he was on the show. That was a big thrill for me personally, knowing these guys. Um, I really didn't know Simon or Garfunkel, but I knew Eddie Simon, his brother, who looked like a carbon copy, uh, also a very small man. Um, but in 1976, there was uh, an opportunity to play with George Harrison. If you recall, there was uh, a sequence where they sing, Here Comes the Sun and Homeward Bound Together. Mm. on the show now it was decided that this could not happen live on saturday night because there would be a frenzy to see george harrison um they decided to record it on a thursday night and lauren michaels said 
don't worry about the guest list. I'll invite an audience. And he did. He invited his friends. But at the end of the day, there were only about, I out of, what is it, 200, maybe 300 people can sit into uh, 8H, fit into right. the studio. There were about 100 people there. Mm-hmm. And so it's about, I think they're taping at 7.30 and at about 6 p.m. I'm in my uniform. Hey, Ed, why don't you go out and see if you can get people to come to the show? So I'm in my uniform. It's very legitimate looking, holding NBC printed tickets in my hand, walking around Rock Center and the surrounding area going, free tickets to see Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel right now. And there were a couple of takers, one or two. The, most of them said they, they had previous commitments. They were going to a Broadway show or they were going home or whatever. So what they wound up doing that night is they shot the, the, the performances three times. And in, in each time they moved the audience around to make it look like a full audience. So they literally had everyone get up and all the pages helped them get up and go to the, the next section, the, the, the right section, the middle section, the left section, so they can shoot it different ways. If you look at the final cut of it, though, they're almost all close-ups. There's very little audience. But I guess they made that decision. I don't know how they edited it. If they wound up only using one take, uh, it could have very well been that they used a couple of back shots where you see some audience. It could have been from another take. Hard to know. But uh, it was one of those moments that I remember clearly that this dream performance was was happening and no one could attend just because it was too last minute right and it's funny and again for those listening um you know people don't like you know to get tickets to these shows depending on what show it is is next to impossible so to get a ticket to go see snl uh and again i, I don't know how it was with you but for us it was you know you send a name on a postcard during august and right. then we literally picked one, you know, we, we had, you know, millions of postcards. We literally would just pick them out of a milk crate, mm-hmm. entered in the computer, you'd get your tickets. And then, you know, your friends would always, you know, you know, get me SNL tickets, get me SNL tickets. And there were a couple of times, and I did it a few times, and, and I would be curious to hear what, you, what your experience was. But, you know, you'd get someone SNL tickets, and to get those tickets, you pretty much had to give up a kidney. And then on Monday, you would say to that person, hey, how was the show? And they were like, yeah, we were tired. We didn't go. Oh, my God. And I'm like, are you in, are you in your mind? So the fact is that it, that eventually when anybody asked me for anything, I just said, we, I can't get you tickets because yeah. we, we would literally get them and they wouldn't show up. And the problem is that if you give these tickets away, you know, the, the show is expecting people to show up to fill the audience. So, you know, um, the fact, you know, and quite frankly, if they have previous commitments or or they just they didn't believe you or they they're like, who cares? You know, it's 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 difficult. It's not so easy to fill an audience, you know, so yeah. once it winds up being a problem. And it's fun. And it's funny because what and we we have a lot of similar things. Um, there was a show called House Party uh, yeah. hosted by Steve Ducey, who's on Fox now. And that show which was also done in SNL studio. It was really cute. It had like a garage and a front porch and it looked like a house and they would, it would, show, I think, right? what? It's a daytime show. It was a daytime show. And they just, it was kind of like, you know, they had a, like a, a you know, it was, on TV, it looked like they were in front of the garage and they would you know show you how to change the oil. And then, right. you know, they were sitting on the stoop or they were in a kitchen. So it was amusing, but there were no audiences. Like we never had a f- full audience. And 
again, I was working and I was like, I'm going to fill this audience. So I went to the downstairs with a bullhorn and literally was like, you know, <laughs> you know, free tickets to a thing. And I wound up like the Pied Piper bringing enough people into the studio where I filled it. And I remember if I don't know if it's the, I'll, I'll say it's either Janice Panino, Mary Rothschild or Mary Frisbee or um, Kathy D'Elia in my review where we used to get those reviews there, they were like, they were like, thanks to David house party had its first full audience. <laughs> you know, they, they added that to my yearly review, but it was kind of cool because nor, you know, again, you need to fill it. And if they're cutting to the audience and nobody's there, it's kind of embarrassing, you know, and sometimes those, those tapings would take hours and hours and hours to get done. And people are like, listen, I got, I got a half hour. I'm not, I'm not interested in sitting here all day. You know, this is, this is ridiculous. It's funny. Well, my my recollection was that it, in the first season, it wasn't that difficult to get tickets for Saturday Night Live, and all, right. all my people really wanted to see it, so they they showed up. Uh, but then there were the standbys, and I believe there are still standbys. Some of them, I understand, have now camped out in front of NBC as much as an hour, uh, much as a day in advance. Yes, standby line. So so that really is still a big part of filling the audience. Uh, as I yeah. as today um yeah there were there were some there, there were some challenges with audiences but usually you could find enough people or we did a good job of promoting them um we also had the game shows we had to tell the truth which they would shoot five shows in one day and uh you know had, what studio what studio that was done in do you remember um it was either 6a or b I, I forget which one was the news four studio yeah news four uh was 6b letterman well letterman was 6a on the left it was also the carson studio in his day right the the live at five one right the yeah. the, the 6b yeah um and then later that that became the the jimmy fallon studio and they moved news four across the hall right Right. They, yeah. It's so I would love to go back and see. But yeah. but you mentioned, yeah, Johnny Carson. And I'm going to mention Steve Fastook, who I don't know if you know who he is. He he does all the operations at CNBC. Mm -hmm. He when when WNBC went with all their cameras, they 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 went automated with all their their automatic cameras. Right. I, I could have sworn he said they because they had to clean out the whole studio. I thought he said he found Johnny's original curtain or or something like one of the original curtains, you know. Um, and I think you mentioned to tell the truth. I, I, I swear to God, I must, I'm, I know I've seen the sign, like the physical to tell the truth, sign, you know, board somewhere. So maybe, you know, it was in someone's office when I was there, but again, to, to just step foot in those studios is incredible because you're standing, it's really like sacred <laughs> ground, yeah. um, to walk into, into either studio is amazing well, since we're on the subject of 6b do you know about jim henson's closet i do and and it's funny because and again i know it's part of the tour now but oh, is it? I, yeah it's actually part of the tour but when i was there and again being so nosy i literally and we'll tell we'll, we'll tell the audience but you know i somehow i found out about it and i remember i just knocked on some door and and for those listening basically if you go down uh the sixth floor make a right at the end of the hallway to go into the stairwell right before the stairwell, there was a door. And that door was like, kind of like just a, it could have been like a, a storage closet. It really wasn't anything fancy. And I remember I knocked on it. Some guy, you know, opened the door. I was like, 
hey, how's it going? Nothing for me today. Thanks. And I just go and I walk to the back of the wall, open the electrical panel, and there are the pipes that Jim Henson covered in fur and created all these Muppets uh, in the wall. Right. And I remember showing people, like taking people there as well. But I now know uh, since they've actually removed the entire wall that I knocked the door on, you know, put a thing and they put plexiglass, you know, inside and they took the panel off. So if you go to the tour, you can actually go in and see it in, in its entirety. Oh, that's great. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Oh, wow. So did you see it? Did oh, yeah. you actually, oh, so so tell me how you came. I'm curious how you came about it. Like, had you well, know? I, I couldn't tell you who told me about it because it was too long ago. Yeah, it was a word of mouth thing. Everybody oh, okay. knew about it at the time. And I would show it to my friends who were visiting me. It, it was a much less uh, it was a much freer place back then. Of course, we didn't have all the security concerns we have today. Right. You could pretty much walk anywhere on the on, in the nine floors of the studios and 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 run into people. It was it was something of a, a, a family, as I said before, where you, you'd run into people you'd see around and they'd be very friendly. And so it was very common to go to places like the sixth floor and show people the Jim Henson's closet. It was no big deal at the time. Uh, everyone was amused by it and everyone was proud of it. Right. Were there any other spots that you um, that comes to mind that that were in the building that um that were kind of surprising or like, like the prop department. I remember going into the prop department um, where you saw all the props hanging from the ceiling. So if you needed, and again, I don't think most people saw that, but I remember having to go in it. And I think his name was Neil, who was like a special effects guy. And mm -hmm. I loved special effects. And I remember going in, but like the, you know, the ceiling had a million, you know, any, any item that you can use, it was like up on the ceiling and, and, mm -hmm getting different props that they use for shows. So was there anything that you remember? I don't know. This really wasn't included in our. Well, uh, the, the, uh, the one thing I, I don't know if it was still in there during your era was the, uh, the sound effects booth for mm -hmm. the NBC tour. I don't know if it's still there or not, but that I'm, for me was the most fun. I came from a radio background. I, I studied film, television, and radio in, in college and was a music director of my radio station at Stony Brook at the time. And I love doing voices. And what we would do is, as you may recall, but was it yeah, there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I believe it was on the fifth floor. Or for us, it was on the fifth no, actually floor. It was on the ninth floor. The one that we used. Oh, okay. So then was, was, was an original NBC studio. It was a radio studio. Okay. The, the, oh. oh, my God. I'm gonna, was it? Yeah. Wait, say that again. No. Well, it's funny because in me, and this is, this actually might connect some things. Um, around the corner from the ninth floor overlook, we have what was called mini control, mm -hmm. but in mini control in the back, again, because I was so nosy, if was a radio studio. Right. And I used to go in there, but no one really knew what the hell it was. So I wonder if that's where you were. Is that possible? Been. It could have been. And we had, uh, it was all very soundproof and, yeah. and very, very, um, it was fun. We would turn out all the lights. And we'd put on a radio show. We had uh, blocks of wood for marching soldiers. We had videotape that we'd make it sound like we're scrambling uh, bacon and using a sound of a coin against a frying pan to give it a sense of stirring eggs, bacon and eggs. So we'd set up a story about that. We'd have one of those doors where you could 
open the door and knock on the door and shut it and make it sound like somebody's coming in. So you'd have characters come in. We had rain. It was basically a large sheet of, I believe, tin and a bird seed would come down on the tin to give the sound of rain. Oh, wow. Uh, so we'd use these effects. There were probably a couple of others that don't come to mind. Oh, we had coconuts for horseshoes. Of course, Monty Python right. became famous. <laughs> um, That's uh, really... It's, right, but, it's funny. Go ahead. No, I was going to say the, the um, I guess some of the, like, I, and again, um, we had a um, probably, well, one is, I'm, I, and I'm curious, if anyone's listening to this, please email me, because what you just mentioned, I really would be so curious to see if that, in fact, was done in the back of Mini Control, because the audience was facing forward where the studio was behind it. So maybe with you guys, maybe the audience looked into the window, and I think there may even be a window to look to see. And I remember the doors, they were like, I mean, it was a big, heavy door. And when you closed it, it was really it quiet. It sounds like it was probably the same space because it was on the ninth floor it was on if you're facing 8h uh, on the ninth floor it was on the on the left side as i recall um right correct and uh yeah there was an area where you could see through the glass so what we would do oh, is funny. do the show in the dark and then open the lights and show them how we made all the sound effects wow. so we go through that process it was just fantastic it was so much fun especially when we had school kid tours because i could right. really nuts and and have fun with the kids and they loved it it was it was really a little homage to old-time radio that i don't know if it exists today i don't know what the tour i haven't been on the tour probably really since i left nbc you know? right right and, it, and like i said we so we had a um a recreation of similar to what you did which again was on the fifth but it was a smaller room was not like a soundproof room we had the the baby door and I remember any any pages listening, we we had the script, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. And it was like, then, you know, and we went to the door and you knock on it. It was like, yeah. and you close the door. We had the coconuts where we did the coconut sound. I think we had, I don't know if it was a washboard or something. We didn't have all the things that you mentioned, but we did a little skit and it was quite, um, it was quite, uh, you know, I mean, it was a fun thing. It really was. It, it was and, yeah. and again, if you get into it, you know, um, totally random. The the NBC chimes because we're talking about radio. Uh, I don't know if you know this answer, but I, but this is some trivia for the folks listening. Um, do you know why NBC the NBC chimes are the way that they are? I guess the sound. I don't know. Well, um, I don't know. This is a, I don't know. Educated guess, but why don't you just tell us? Okay, so the. This is quite amazing. This is fascinating. I think this is the coolest thing ever. So for those that know, um, you have, you know, those chimes, those famous, and the famous logo that said, you know, NBC. Um, at the time, NBC was owned by the General Electric Company. And the notes are G-E-C. Interesting. So that's how they got the NBC chimes, which is mind-blowing. Wow. Isn't that cool? I just think that's the coolest thing ever. And 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 the feathers, the seven feathers of the Peacock logo, each one was supposed to represent a different division of NBC. Mm -hmm. So one of those feathers, I think, was the radio division. So technically, one of the feathers has to come out because that doesn't exist anymore. And I'm sure probably some more. I know like one was sports, one was entertainment, you know. So the Peacock well, has since, to be. Since you're talking about the logo, the logo went through so many iterations. In my period... 
when I got there, you may recall they had, it may have been before your time, but they had a triangle N. It was yeah. two sides of an N, which interestingly, they supposedly had a logo developer spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop. But the Nebraska, Nebraska Educational Network, which was a, like a PBS station, uh, had developed the same logo for $50. I wow. mean, they had some designer just put it together. So they wound up having to buy out Nebraska. They paid them a lot of money to be able to use this logo, but the logo was made fun of in 1976. I still have some of the original logo uh, uh, swag. Where right. like, uh, There are a number of things that they did with that, but then they eventually reintroduced the peacock to the logo. And eventually they, they added more feathers to the peacock Right. Um, I think to show the spectrum of color. Yeah, when I first went to color, they, they had all they, the color. They had uh, during there was a period called the NBC two thousand era, where they had famous animators take yeah. take a stab at the logo. Yeah, uh, I actually worked on that on that project. That was amazing. I do remember that each one was unique, and it was like it was like artwork. I mean, you could and it's you're just ringing a bell. I mean, I'm going to look for that too when we get off. It was beautiful takes on the logo it was amazing yeah so, oh my and god one of the one of the animators was uh the guy who did brendan stimpy i remember hirschfeld the um famous um broadway illustrator did one there were a number of people who were sort of famous yeah fact, there were prints of it are out there i'm sure you can find one on ebay wow uh, but i as long as we're talking about that i'll just mention yeah. that, that period um was when the under the auspices of John Miller and Vince Manzi and and sort of the, the lead on the pro project was Jeff Rowe, developed the NBC 2000 campaign where for the first time they would split the credits. And this is later in my career when I came back to produce content for those split credits at the end of the show. Basically, there was a lot of dead time. They, they figured out in a 24-hour day, there was something like seven or eight minutes of dead time between the shows plus the credits so they developed a system of end-to-end -end marketing programming promotion and put content into those credits well as soon as nbc rolled out this campaign virtually every other network followed suit mm. today it's called a credit crunch and it's very common to see on broadcast television and many of the cable networks they promote another show in those early days, and this is probably 1994, we uh, we would actually shoot celebrities talking about their shows or Kelsey Dra Grammer on Frasier performing a version of the NBC theme song or uh, talking about uh, It's a Wonderful Life, the movie which they were promoting, that sort of thing. Those are the kinds of things I was charged with uh, recording um, you know, sticks with Johnny Carson's best bits and what have you. So they did a whole bunch of things like that in that era. You know, I have to laud NBC for really staying ahead of the curve. They created so much in the world of promotional innovation uh, that others followed suit. And that was one of them. I was proud to work on that. No, it's amazing because, um, and it's, you know, when you work for, for, for like NBC, and I remember if I ever called, um, you know, if when I when I was at WNBC promotion, you know, I would make a phone call to whomever, you know, whatever, whoever I called, and they would always return the call. And yeah. nine out of ten times, they would agree to anything that I wanted to do. And you know, it, you, you know, it's kind of weird because 
you know, when you work for NBC, you know, you, you, you really could do anything you want and you don't realize that, you know, millions of people are seeing this and you may have done something like you just mentioned where, you know, you, they, they do. And it's funny. Um, the uh, credit, did, I guess that they refer to it as the credit uh, uh, squeeze or, you know, yeah, it's been called credit squeeze, squeeze and things more commonly in the promo world. I've, I've heard of it as the credit crunch crunch but at the same time. It's the same idea. Yeah. Right. So everybody who's listening, you know, I'm sure sees it all the time at the end of the show, you know, the credits sort of shrink down and they sometimes they move at twice the speed, which you can't right. even read it. They're showing you a promotion and then and then some of them will go right into the next movie. So you don't have a chance to, like, get up and leave. So right. all these innovations we take, you know, we take them for granted, but there was somebody like Vince Manzi, um, right? And Jeff yeah. Rowe. And John Mill. Yeah. Um, which I knew a little bit from the, they, they were network promotion, but you know, they came up with all of these um, innovations and once it gets out, once the cat's out of the bag, you know, the world sees it and then everybody says, well, that's a good idea. Let's just copy it. So right. some people don't really get the credit that they deserve um, and I'd mentioned this before. I remember Bob Wright um, put the NBC logo in the corner of the screen where it was on all the time. And I remember he said, and again, it's very common now to see the bug in the corner, but at the time it never really was done. And he said, no, you know, in the, in the future, there are going to be so many channels that everybody needs to know that this is NBC. Well, actually, there is there's a, uh, a history to that that I can I can attest. Yeah, to. no, I'd love to hear it. Jeff Rowe, who later worked at NBC and developed NBC 2000 in 1994, uh, that created the first logo on screen at VH1. VH1 that he put the logo on the screen for the same reason. But like every other innovation, everybody copied very quickly. And at first it was great protest. If you recall, they, they, they started... Um, making it translucent so you wouldn't right. notice it too much but it was there and then they animated it and then you know where it evolved to today is unfortunately you'll see persistent logos through the entire broadcast day or cable day depending on where you're you're looking not so much on the net on uh, on the broadcast channels but in other places and then just rolling persistently promos through the shows which i find really intrusive as a promo guy it's it's kind of offensive after a while, you know. Yeah. Take a beat, but that's another story. Um, but I, I credit Jeff for doing that, and actually, Jeff is a friend of mine today. Wow. Uh, we're still in touch, and uh, he is now working. He just rebranded a station, a PBS station, in uh, um, I'm sorry, an NPR station, a radio station in Los Angeles called LAist. And uh, he's still innovating the way he did at NBC. Uh, hats off to him. So he's really one of the, the great pioneers of that kind of branding. Right. No, it's so amazing. It, it's um, and it's funny because um, like next week, you know, I'll have a meeting with somebody, uh, you know, and they're trying to brand something and blah blah blah. But literally, some of some of the brands or locate or 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 um, venues and things in the, in New York City, you know, it's anyone can just do something simple but you know to really think outside the box like you want to do something that's totally different or unique or or creative um to sort of get that message out um and that's and i love doing that like i love just coming up with these crazy ideas as as i'm sure you um did and do 
Um, we, so we, I guess we're all like-minded in that respect, and I think good promotion people are always trying to uh, not repeat themselves and do something different. Right. It was funny. Um, <clears throat> I'll mention um, um, uh, Lee Menard from right, WC. Do you know Lee Menard? Nice guy. Ah, uh, so okay. So no longer Lee, with us, but keep going. Right. So Lee Menard was the head of promotion for WCBS. And again, talk about getting, you know, we, I went to, to Promax and we were going to a, and Promax is a, um, a producer's convention that shows all promotion, really amazing. And I remember we were waiting for a bus to take us to a party and someone I knew worked for Lee and I, and I said, introduce, and I was, and, and I just left King world and I said, introduce me to Lee. So he introduced me and I remember I got on the bus and I just, I think I got on my knee and I said, Lee, I want to work for WCBS. And he was like, uh, you know, who are you, you crazy person? So he said, come in Monday or whatever for a meeting. I went in, boom, got the job and talk about, you know, cool promotion. We had a four second ID and Lee was really good with After Effects. He actually really knew how to use After Effects and, and those listening After Effects is like a graphic program to create animation and such. So I came up with the line, it finally arrives. And the, the, what you saw was the word Titanic. And it was a, it, it was a dark scene and you see the waves moving and you, and you hear, um, and basically the word Titanic is sinking into the, into the water. And, um, uh, and you hear like, you know, the foghorn, you know, it finally arrives, you know, Tuesday at nine. So it was really a cute, promote you know we could have just said titanic at nine you know whatever but we you know he built this great animation we had some great voiceover sound and it was just such a clever way of just showing the the word titanic you know sinking into this thing um so again yeah, it just there was a time when there was so much innovation and promotion there are a number of people who can take credit certainly lee is one of them yeah uh, for really uh flipping the script making things different and and you know I'm, it's cliche but out of the box as that phrase goes right yeah it was a great time wow i'm sure if we compared promo notes we'd have a lot in common as well. oh that's awesome no this is great well it's funny because if they ever have a page reunion which i don't know if you you know i think you did post you do you do some posting they, they've been talking about this page reunion yeah, in it's, it's unclear if there's actually going to be a reunion right the last reunion was um in 2013 for the 80th anniversary we're coming up on the 90th anniversary of the nbc pages and think about that it was 1923 1933 still in the radio era when the first pages uh worked at nbc radio and they wore these very fancy uniforms with epaulettes and what have you uh and and the page staff is still there today i, I consider being an nbc page like going to television graduate school so tell me about Sonny Fox, the VP of children's programming. Uh, and again, he he was the one he created Wonderama. Was that with, with who was was he also a page the the host? Um, no. Sonny Fox is it something not, not him? Uh, I'm sorry. You know, let me let me start again. I'm sorry. I, I stepped on. You. Say, tell me about Sonny Fox, VP of children. You know, okay. from there. Okay. So tell me about uh, Sonny Fox, the VP of children's programming. Well, growing up in New York City in the 1960s, there were several people who uh, most of us will remember fondly. There was Soupy Sales, who later I got to know when he worked on 
uh, to tell the truth when I was a page. He was a really nice guy. There was Chuck McCann, who uh, impersonated a whole bunch of characters on WPIX Channel 11, uh, because that was the, the daily news channel. He used to read the comics as Dick Tracy and Ann, uh, Little Orphan Annie. And then there was S Sonny Fox. Sonny Fox pretty much invented uh, the show called Wonderama. It was on Sunday mornings for about three or four hours. I can't remember exactly how long it was. He also had another show on Saturdays called Just for Fun. But the thing is, he it was on Channel 5 in New York, which in those days was called WNEW. And it would be a show where he made kids the stars. This was young, young children, anywhere from five to 12 to 15 at the at, at maybe at the oldest, he'd have major guests on the show, like Robert Kennedy was on the show one time. Uh, magicians like the amazing Randy, he was beloved. He he took his chops and eventually became part of the uh, TV Academy uh, out in Los Angeles. But before that, in 1976, he became VP of children's programming for NBC. And I had the good fortune of being the page that worked with him. Wow. And what a what a class act this man was. He he sort of reminded you of Cary Grant in his demeanor. Very very classy guy, um, and I, I truly feel that my entire childhood was enriched by this man. Uh, I managed because of I guess that bonding we had in that era. Stayed in touch with him through my career. I had a promotion career. Um, where I'd run into him at, at events like uh, NATBE, which is the National Association of Television Programming Executives and other places. And actually in his later years, uh, stayed in touch with him on a variety of levels when he came back to be honored by Thomas Jefferson in high school in, in Brooklyn. I came to that event and we sort of reconnected and I stayed in touch with him, actually hosted his 95th birthday party oh webcast God. online. Wow. Unfortunately, we lost him to COVID just not, not long after that. But he was still sharp, crisp, funny, and had that wonderful deep bass voice. Um, and he absolutely had a following here in New York, even to this day. I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who will remember him fondly. That was one of my highlights of being a page. Right. And Wonderama, uh, it, it was... Um... McAllister. Right? Bob McAllister but, followed Sonny Fox. Oh, right. Okay. So, yeah. so and, Sonny and was the newer iterations of the show that are much different than the show that they hosted. So, so, so again, I'm, I, so even, so Sonny Fox was the host of one Rama creator. Well, creator, did he host it or, or, yeah, yeah. oh, he did. Okay. So, wow. So that actually is because I, I, of course, remember, I guess, Right, Bill Bill McAllister is that right? McAllister, Bob yes. McAllister, you're, yeah, like my sister. You're the Bob McAllister. Okay, family. wow. So that's interesting. So there was a whole other show, or the same show, or the or version of the show, well, the original show, prior to him taking over, because that was, you know, <laughs> the one thing we remember. You remember the can of snakes? You would open the oh, the sure. can. There was a can, a big can, and if you pulled it out and the snake popped out, or you'd win a prize. I mean, that was like that was a that was like gold. You know, it was great. So that's that's amazing. I didn't I didn't even know that, or maybe I forgot it. But that that is amazing that you uh, had a chance to. And again, just being around these people and listening and seeing how they process things literally shape can shape your life. It's 
fascinating. It influenced me uh, deeply. And as I said, I, I stayed in touch with him deliberately, you know, writing to him every few years. He was such a class act. He'd always write back to me or, or we'd talk by phone. And eventually towards the end of his life, I was very important to him because I helped him sort of get his word out and, and, and celebrate his 95th birthday online. There is a podcast of it, uh, a webcast of it floating around somewhere. So tell me, um, you know, the effect of the program and some of the places that you've worked, uh, you know, throughout your career. Well, I consider the PAGE program to be one of the highlights of my career, for sure. Many of the skills I learned there, I used throughout my career. I had a very successful career as a writer, producer, and creative director working with a number of television networks. Uh, highlights include Nickelodeon, Nick at Night were some of the most innovative promotion uh, of the 1990s happened. It was a great place to work. I worked for Joan Rivers, who was a total class act. She uh, she made everything I wrote funnier. We'd be in the announce booth. She'd read my copy and, and just add to it, make it even better. Uh, I got to work for Martha Stewart as her director of creative services for, for three years. I worked for AOL. Um, I really enjoyed a very prosperous career, a very fulfilling career in creative services. Uh, these days, I'm working for Compass Real Estate here in New York, in Manhattan. And shameless plug, if anybody wants to buy or sell a home in New York City, I'm happy to help. Oh, good. Where can they get a hold of you? Is there is there a website well, or address? The, the easiest thing would be ed.baronhouse at compass.com. Yeah, I do. Let, let's go for it. That's good. Okay, <laughs> go on. Happy to, uh, happy to chat or answer any questions you have about New York City real estate. Wow. So that was great. So so it sounded like you had so many. I mean, it sounds like a great, amazing career. It sounded so much fun and it's, you were able to do so many cool things. Um, uh, it really it, it's it's do you have any advice for anyone that may want to either become a page or even just follow their dreams in in doing something that, they, you know, maybe they're stuck in a job that they don't really like. Do you have any advice for them to you know, take the chance and follow their dream or what, what, what are your thoughts on that? If you can, if you're in, have the, uh, the financial means to be able to do something else, by all means, find, find that happiness, network with people, ask people for informational interviews. Uh, the more personal contact you have with people, the better. Emails are great. Nice resumes are great, but you know they they get into a pile. They 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 wind up in a pile. Um, all of the great experiences I had uh, came through personal relationships, and it all started with the NBC page staff. Um, moving from there to Channel Four and having uh, people I know who used to work at NBC call me up to work in other places. Um, it really it really is about personal relationships harder to do these days but yeah. certainly is rewarding um i always follow my dreams I, i'll also mention i currently work as a consulting producer on the annual john lennon tribute which is run by a nonprofit called theater within and we do shows that uh uh help provide workshops for people with cancer and school children um it's it's another story again uh, but uh, we're doing our show this year at Town Hall on December 2nd, and our honoree this year will be Graham Nash. Wow. It's going to be a awesome show. Um, I wouldn't have had all of those kinds of experiences if it wasn't for my start as an NBC page. Wow. 
Wow. No, so fascinating. And I encourage if anybody's interested in, in the, in whether the, you know, through your real estate or some of the projects you just mentioned to reach out to you, I'll repeat the uh, email just one more time, just so they okay, have. So it's ed.berenhouse. I'll spell my last name because most people get it wrong. Right. It's B-E-R-E-N-H-A-U-S at compass.com. And uh, happy to return your email and happy to chat by phone or Zoom or whatever you'd like. Wow. Well, this has been fantastic. So again, I, I always get a kick out of it because you literally um, gave me so many interesting stories that I didn't really know. And I'm, I don't know what it is, but I'm, which is why I maybe have this podcast, but it's, it's so fascinating to hear those stories and hear things that, you know, you're filling in the the blanks of things that, that I knew I knew of or this and that, but it's, I, I just love it. So, so you've been wonderful. So thank you so much for being a guest. Um, you know, we really appreciate it. And I know the viewers will as well. Well, thank you, David. And, and I'm so happy you're doing these podcasts because there's a very small group of people who went through these experiences. Um, when you think about how many people could be on a staff at any given time, maybe a hundred at most uh, on either coast. And, and you look at that little group of people who, who really lived inside television and got to know what was what was going on you know from the inside perspective unfiltered it's wonderful to hear all these stories and uh i i actually have more i could tell but we'll, we'll say that we may we may have you back for part two because you you did you had so many amazing stories and the fact that you could remember so many of them is is quite extraordinary so and although i will say that i think maybe you know they they say this but i remember things further back i don't remember what i had for breakfast but i do remember those uh, interactions and things that I did as a page, they, they, they like burned into my brain. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they really, they really are. They are highlights of my life. And yeah. uh, I look back at them fondly. Uh, it's so cool. And, and again, I wonder, and again, every page that I've spoken to and, and friends, you know, it, it, there's just something about it. It was so much fun and it was all condensed, you know, cause you didn't have a long time as a page. Um, did you have a year or a year and a half? Actually, in those days, it was a 16-month uh, uh, run. I think okay. today it's 12 months. Okay. Mine was but, 18, so. Oh. Yeah. Well, it was 18. And I stayed on two extra months because I became a tour supervisor. So, mm. and then from there, I transitioned into Channel 4. Wow. Wow. I, I remember that I stayed longer than not because they wanted me to continue training tour guides. Mm funny because some of these people are now you know very famous people uh, right but again had you stayed and that's the thing had you stayed and that talks about you know doing what you dream you know you could have stayed and taken the easy route but you you know you would have had a chance to be creative and do all these wonderful other things so it's one of those things where being safe is good but you know if you truly you know want to do something where you are excited to to wake up every day and that's difficult it's a difficult it's difficult for, for everybody to do that, you know, so it was, it was great that you were able to do that. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. I actually know people who are still at NBC and have worked there the entire time. Since oh, wow. they um, but they're happy. They, they, they see a life through a very specific lens, right. you know, work lens. Right. And, and it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a great career. Anyone who's interested in broadcasting and hopefully there's some young people out there, find your way to guest relations and see if you can apply to be a page. Okay. 
Well, uh, again, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ed Barenhaus. Thank you. And I, I have a tour leaving in 20 minutes, so I got to <laughs> Thanks for listening to A Page in History. A Page in History is produced by David Harris Katz Entertainment. For more information on our television shows, syndication, and more, go to dhcats.com. And to listen to more episodes of A Page in History, or if you've been lucky enough to call yourself one of the world-famous NBC pages and would like to appear on the show, go to apageinhistory.tv.